Good morning. Well, today is Father's Day, haven't you heard? For Mother's Day, we had a hundred individual stemmed roses, dethorned for you guys. So my uh, proposal was, elders, is it okay to buy all the men here one box of ammo, whatever caliber they want? And they said, uh, maybe next year if the budget allows it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I couldn't think of a good thing for the guys to get. Do you all like roses? Because I... Nah, me either. Me either. Edible roses? I'm not even going to ask what that is. All right. This morning, talking about our Father in Heaven for a little while. It's interesting, all the names that God gives himself in Scripture, trying to define himself properly, trying to explain to us his creation, who he is, what he is, how he feels about us and for us and what he's done through us. is an interesting dynamic. All the names of Scripture are so interesting because they give you a layer of who a certain individual like God truly is. He is our maker. He is our creator. He is the one who wants a covenant relationship with us. He is the great I am for the Hebrews. But the most personal name that we have for God, when Jesus was on the scene in the first century, he came down from God. He was a man, but he's also deity. And trying to explain that relationship between who we are as his people And who he is as our God, he preferred to describe him as the Father. And that is so detailed, and that is so layered, and it's so personal. And the interesting thing about it is, we can hopefully relate to what that relationship is like with our own family dynamic. Hopefully, you have a father in your life. And sometimes, as a wonderful blessing to be able to think of God, our creator, like our own physical fathers who love us, who teach us, who guide us, who correct us from time to time. Right, Luke? And we've got this father who loves us so much that he wants only the best thing for you. And although you may not understand why the commands are there in Scripture, we are assured that those commands are for our benefit. And if we do what God our Father tells us to do, how ironic is this? If we do what our Father tells us to do, it will be for our own best benefit later in life. <clears throat> but also thank God for mothers, okay? Oh. So God, here we are again, describing himself as our Father in heaven, shows us something very, very important about who he is in relation to us. And the more we learn about God, our Father, the better fathers that we can be. We can strive to be better than our own fathers, despite how good or not so great they may have been. We can try to be better for the next generation. So this morning what I want to do is get to know our Father in heaven in three particular different ways, because every good gospel sermon has to have three different points. Isn't that right? Amen. That's what Paul said, right? Somewhere in 
The book of made up? Okay. The first thing we can know about our Father in heaven is we can know about him through more detail by knowing more about his son. Have you ever seen someone where you see a father and a son and they are the spitting image of each other? Do you see someone that looks just like their dad and you can see their personality, you see their quirks, you see their sayings, and you say, you're just a spitting image of who your father is. If you've ever experienced that, hold your horses because Jesus is a little bit better than that, right? Describing Jesus uh, properly is defining who he truly is. And John did the best job of doing that for us in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, so going back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, that's the same beginning in the same context, was the Word. Now that word, Word, everyone who is here for Bible class knows the Greek for that word, Word, correct? Logos, right? The idea of a logos or a word is something very dynamic and very interesting, at least to me, because I find these things fascinating. Okay, so bear with me. If I say a word to you, what's really happening is I'm trying to get your mind to picture something in your head. If I say banana, what's your brain do? Hopefully thinks of an image of a banana, right? If I say apple, you think of either a computer, right, Randy? Or personal vendetta, don't worry. Or you think of the fruit, right? So when you say a word, what you're really doing is using your vocabulary, your vocal cords, to be able to say a word of something, and the image of that thing should go to your mind. That's literally who Jesus is. When you see Jesus, you see the mind of God. And that's interesting. That's fascinating. So knowing more about the Son gives us more information about the Father. Let's go over to John chapter 10, verse 30. John 10, verse 30. It's a very short verse. You might already know it. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. There is a fellowship, a togetherness between Jesus and the Father that he was trying to tell us the entire time he was here on earth. Whenever he had confrontation with the religious leaders of the day, they didn't recognize him because they didn't truly recognize who God the Father was. That was the issue. If they understood who God was, they would have easily identified, oh, this is God's son. This is Jesus, the Messiah we've been waiting for. The Hebrews author put it this way, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the brightness of his glory. If you have any detail about the idea of whenever God made himself somewhat visible in some way to his people in the Hebrew scriptures, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now that word express image, it's a very detailed kind of layered term there, but really what it is simply is an imprint, right? Sometimes back in the day, you'd have a letter and it wouldn't have the whole lick and seal it kind of adhesive system, right? So what you would do was you'd drip some wax onto the fold of that letter and then you would stamp something, a signet ring or a stamp into it, into that hot wax and that would seal it. And what you have on the express image of his person is literally the phrase of he's imprinting himself into the person of Jesus Christ. 
So if you want to get an image of who the Father is, you look to Jesus. He is God in a body. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11 now. Matthew chapter 11. Beginning in verse 25. I've got to say, in every congregation I've been to since becoming a minister, I've always encouraged people politely to follow along in their own Bibles. Now, in the day of me using an iPad up here, I don't hear those pages turn quite as often. Whenever I say turn there here, you guys turn there. So I appreciate that very much. I love hearing that paper. Matthew chapter 11, as I flip through my iPad, mind you. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord or Master of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. It's an interesting motion of gratitude. Jesus is thanking his God, his Father, that he has revealed himself to not the wise of this world, to the folks who are know-it-alls of this creation, but the ones who are innocent, that are pure, that are humble, the babes, spiritually. Even so, Father, for it seemed, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And here's the kicker for us. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will reveal to him. And so here you have a, a moment of pause, of praise from Jesus to his Father in heaven, and the small detail is included. But if you want to know about who the Father is in that relationship, you have to go through the Son. And finally, over in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Not verse 16, if you had guessed that one. Dropping all the way down to verse 34. John 3, 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure, or in increments, we might say. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So in John chapter 3, revealing who he truly was, to a man who should have recognized who Jesus was, Nicodemus, he goes and expounds upon the idea of if you don't recognize Jesus, you're not going to recognize the Father. And so how do we learn more about our Father in heaven? We have to get to know him through his Son. The more we learn about him, experience his ministry, his teachings, his parables, the closer we are to understanding the very mind of God himself. Secondly, how do we get to know God, our, our Father in heaven? We get to know him through Thankfully, His grace. Grace. If I'm looking for one word to sum up the entirety of especially the New Testament, if you don't have a proper understanding of grace, you've missed the picture. That's the picture. Grace is so wonderful. It's so powerful because we get what we don't deserve. Unmerited favor sometimes is called by definition. Remember uh, Camp Canaan, like it was just last week. 
And we're talking about Noah and the flood. And we had, my particular group was 12-year-old boys. As I mentioned last week, they're wonderful. They got a lot of enthusiasm, right? 12-year-old boys are great because they're getting concepts. They're a bit more mature. But I can guarantee you the 10-year-old girls were way more mature than my 12-year-old boys. Talking about Noah, I read uh, the book of Genesis. We got to the idea of how evil mankind was, how wicked they were. All the thoughts of every intention was only evil continually, probably bad, right? And then verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I asked them what grace was. I'm not going to pick on them, but they didn't have a good definition for it. They couldn't describe it. They couldn't define it. And so what I did was, if you get bad grades in school, what do your parents do to you? And someone said, take my phone away. And I realized I am getting old. <laughs> because I didn't have a phone until I was 18 years old. So if I got bad grades, I was doing yard work. I wasn't getting my phone taken away, but neither here nor there. I go, okay, so what happens if you get a bad grade and you deserve to have your phone taken away, but your parents give it back to you early? They go, ah, oh, yes. I go, that's the exact expression I wanted. Because that's what grace is. You don't get what you deserve, but you learn the lesson and you're appreciative and you're thankful for what you get. And when it comes to knowing about God our Father, if we don't think about grace, again, we don't know Him whatsoever. Because God, as our Creator, ultimately pure and holy and sinless, made us with all our wrinkles all our issues, all our problems. But He knows us. He made us. And He loves us anyway. And so He's provided a way for us to access that level of grace. He wants the best for us, right? As our Father, He wants us to be the best version of ourselves. And ultimately, He wants to be with us This is me extending grace <laughs> to whoever in the world didn't silence their phone when David said, please silence your phones. Ted, calm down. Calm down, Ted. Are you okay? <laughs> Again, he wants to be with us forever. He's given us a way to access that grace. Let's go over to James chapter 1, verse 17. This might sound familiar. Hopefully it does. James put it this way, probably the first book ever penned timeline-wise of the New Testament, James had this to say. Chapter 1, verse 17, every good and complete or perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change or of turning, right? So God doesn't change. There's no variation. You don't have to wonder what kind of mood your Father in Heaven is in, because He loves you anyway. And so we have our Father above us who wants to give us things. We live in this wonderful world, despite middle Georgia somehow feeling like 110 degrees outside. I thought Charleston was hot, y'all. We have this wonderful world. We have all the things that we need here in this planet. And all the good things we experience in this creation is from our loving Father 
and heaven. Let's go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. I could talk about prayer for a long time. I could. Challenge me, please. I could do it for a year. Prayer is an interesting, complicated, yet somehow simple thing. Communication with the God that made us is instantaneous, but also connects us to a spiritual part of ourselves that we don't have access to any other time. And also, God cares about what we want, but he also knows about what we need before we want it, so why do we ask him in the first place? Prayer is interesting. But when he learned from the Son how to pray to the Father, some interesting things are mentioned. Let's go to Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Well, here you go. Here you got the guy that came from heaven, God in a body, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And the question is, can you teach us how to properly pray? Well, yeah, I want to read that. Verse 2, he said, when you pray, say. Now, be very clear here, he's not giving you a magical incantation. You hear me? He's not giving you a magical incantation. Is it wrong to repeat these words word for word? Not necessarily. This is not a magical incantation. That's not how God works. Father, beginning with number one, to whom should you pray? Well, Jesus said he's praying to his Father, which, by the way, is a revolutionary concept in the first century. You couldn't even mention the name of God. You had to call him Adonai in the Greek, Lord. You couldn't call him Yahweh. You couldn't call him the great I Am. You couldn't call him God, even, Elohim. You couldn't. It's blasphemy, because God's name is so holy, you can't even say it because of how sinful you are. Jesus said, talk to your father. That means something very different in my house. When Melissa says, go talk to your father. When I say talk to your father, what I mean is, God's your father. Hallowed, holy, special, set apart is your name. Now, if we drop down this text, I'm sure this might sound somewhat familiar to you. Hopefully it does. But if you get to the very end of what we're supposed to be doing when we pray, we eventually run, uh, end up to this concept, verse 10. Because everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Is that true in all circumstances everywhere? No. Is it true about God hearing our prayers? Absolutely. Verse 11, here's the dichotomy, here's the contrast, here's the illustration, right? What father among you, if you're a dad, you should be able to say, put yourself in this scenario. If his son asked for a fish, will instead of the fish give him a snake? Would you do that? In all seriousness. Your son is hungry. You know he's hungry. He says, Father, can I please have a fish? You give him a snake to bite him instead. No, he wouldn't do that. Or if he asked for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? Of course not, we wouldn't do that. If you then, who are evil, saying if you wouldn't even do that, and you're someone who's not like God, in other words, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 
The inference here is, you know as a father what it means to take care of your children, don't you? You know what they need. When they ask for it, you give it to them, right? If it's proper and appropriate. How much more does our Heavenly Father love us and knows what we have need of, and if we ask for it, He wants to give us those good and perfect things. Again, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So not only do we know Him through His Son, we know Him through His grace by giving us those things that we need here in this world, and also giving us salvation. Over in the book of Ephesians, let's turn there now. Ephesians. Beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this time or age, but also in the one to come. That's Paul for you, by the way. (laughs) Just saying, I remember you in my prayers. And he just launches off into the greatest theological explanation to where they are seated at the right hand of the Messiah, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We go to chapter 2, verse 1. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature or fusus uh, training, Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He's saying, you were dead in your sins. You were like everybody else in the world, deceived and just following what felt good to you at the time. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And don't forget, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How do we get to know our Father in heaven? First, you have to look to his Son. If you want an imprint of who God is, look at Jesus. Secondly, who is God? How do we know him? Because of the great mercy and grace he's given to every single one of us, giving us good things on this life and ultimately giving us his son who
who gives us salvation for all time. Finally, how do we get to know our Father in heaven? You look at his works. You look at what he's done for us. And we could go literally anywhere in these scriptures and describe some things. But I want to show you an interesting connection. I'm by no means the first one to have ever connected these two dots because the authors did that for themselves. Let's go to the book of Genesis. Chapter 3. I'm hoping that most of you are familiar with the fall of man in chapter 3. We've got the serpent in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The serpent starts talking for some weird reason, talking to Eve. She is deceived in thinking God is holding back and that she's not going to die if she eats from the forbidden tree. She is deceived and gives to Adam, who is apparently right next to her the whole time. Adam is not deceived, we learn later on, and he eats willingly, subjecting himself to the one who went to sin first. But here we are in this garden, there is the fall, and if we drop down, verse 7, I suppose, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So much there. Don't forget that God made this whole creation. He made mankind in his image. Gave him a spirit, gave him a soul, or became a living soul. He had a job to do, mankind did. And all he wanted to do was just walk in the garden with his people. It's all he wanted. Walking in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called out to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then Adam, as Adam does, Well, it's not my fault, because, you know, the woman that you made gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Okay. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? She said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And let me go through the consequences of what's taking place here. We have various things, but let's just drop down to the end here. To mankind, verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You're going to be working hard in the dirt of the earth all your life just to make food. And when you're done, your body will go right back to that dirt. That's your consequence. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made Adam for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then verse 22, kind of a side note almost. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Weird for Genesis, not weird for the rest of the New Testament, right? Now, 
lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God doesn't even finish his thought about what would take place. He goes, we know the man and woman fell. They went into sin. They have disrupted the fellowship that we have with them in this place. And now they have the, the consequences for their actions. But if they stay here in the garden and they also eat from the tree of life, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and, the east at, uh, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What in the world? Well, here's what in the world. Let's go to Revelation. That was Genesis, God's intended plan. Create mankind, live with him forever, I will be your God, you will be my people. That plan got disrupted by sin. Thankfully, God prepared a man, Jesus, for us to be able to have access to him through fellowship once again. And looking forward to the future, John the Apostle wrote these words. Revelation 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, guess what was there, John? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be upon their foreheads. Which is, by the way, a very prophetic, fancy way to say all they think about will be about God. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or of sun, because the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. To the very end of the book. Let's turn there together. Verse 20. John sees this panoramic image of what's to come. Even looking forward unto the coming of Christ, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, the people being there with God as he intended all the way back in the book of Genesis. And what does John have to say about that? Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. At the end of the book, the last book we have inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, John sees what's waiting for us in the future. And the only remark that John has is, come, quickly. Take us home. Make it right. Let us be your people. We'll let you be our God. So when I say this morning, our Heavenly Father loves us. That's what I mean. 
by looking at his works, all he's ever wanted was to be your father. It's all he's ever wanted was for you to be his children. And he's given you the way to be a part of that relationship this very morning. Do you want to get to know your heavenly father on Father's Day? Of all times, look to his son, look to his grace, look to his works. He's revealed himself to you in these scriptures. If anyone this morning has a need to know more about your heavenly father, if you've not accessed his grace through the personhood of Jesus Christ, or something in your life this morning is causing a rift in that fellowship, there's something between you and your heavenly father this morning, let's help you, please. We know the way. He's told us the way in his scriptures. If we can help you at all, respond now by coming forward. We stand and we sing.